0: on today's episode.
1: If we look at the number of rigs, so the absolute volume of rigs that are currently opening and operating, we can clearly see that we are about a third fewer rigs today than we averaged in the 2012 to 2020 time period. So that suggests a significant decline in our fossil fuel productive capacity, so to speak but at the same time both crude and natural gas volumes are higher and in the case of natural gas significantly higher than pre-covid rates of production which suggests that there is a non-negligible productivity gain on a per rig basis that has certainly happened in the US shale
0: Welcome to the Active Share a podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing I'm your host, Hugo Scott-Call. Today, I'm delighted to have with me Olga Batel. Olga is William Blair's global strategist. She is responsible for economic research and analysis across all regions and sectors. She distills macroeconomic and geopolitical developments into actionable insights for global equity portfolios within a multifaceted strategic framework. Before she joined William Blair, 2009. She was a senior economist at the National Institute of Economic and Social Research in London, where she produced macroeconomic forecasts for most Asian economies and led thematic research projects projects for some of the world's best-known international organizations, including OPEC and the IMF. She's a graduate of the University of Chicago and the London School of Economics. Olga, thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Hugo. It's a pleasure, as always, to converse with you.
0: Yes. Well, Let's see about that. But it is a pleasure to have you on again, I should say, because last time, last few times was about COVID and today we're not going to be talking about COVID. So let's highlight what we are going to be talking about, what is on the agenda. I thought we'd go like this. We'll talk a bit about recession risks for the US, recent convulsions in the banking sector, the credit pulse and how the Fed has responded. Then we'll drill down, I think, into inflation short term and longer term, then I'd like to talk with you about some bigger picture stuff. We'll go bigger picture of productivity, geopolitics, and then maybe we'll end up on your overall outlook for risk assets, which will integrate a lot of what we've discussed. Does that sound okay to you?
1: That sounds like a very ambitious agenda, Hugo. Let's go.
0: It is an ambitious agenda. So as you say, let's go, let's get cracking. So US economy, near-term recession risk up or down due to convulsions in the banking sector does that diminish the credit pulse in the economy or has the fed's response been enough to put out that risk of rising risk of recession
1: so the short answer to your question is yes to both the way we're monitoring what has happened in the banking system and the impact of it on the near term economic activity in the us and more broadly is really through two charts the first is the weekly change in aggregate bank lending. So this is the volume of lending and money that goes out to support the real economic activity. And we see that that has decelerated slightly, but we're still above the pre-COVID trends. Of course, the price of that credit has gone up. We expect it to go up. That is indeed what the Fed would like to happen via raising rates. That in itself should dampen economic activity, although we certainly hope not to recessionary levels. The second chart, which deals more explicitly with how the Fed is addressing liquidity challenges in the banking sector, has to do with the aggregate Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And what we see here is that as a response to the stress that we observed in March, the Fed reversed course uh, and began to add to its total deposits, and a bit on the margin to its reverse repo arrangements, such that the balance sheet, the Fed's aggregate balance sheet, is expanding again. So the amount of money available to support economic activity is now growing. And as long as that dual policy persists, so keeping rates where they are and or marginally raising them from here, together with providing liquidity to the banking sector, should see us through with hopefully no recession.
0: I always get excited when someone says reverse repo so thank you for saying that. So the Fed expanding its balance sheet is good for risk assets. That is empirically true certainly last decade or so. But is is that a response really to a a crisis of the Fed zone making which is a bit unfair let's say It's a response to an unavoidable crisis. And the Fed has had to put up interest rates pretty sharply to cope with inflation, which has, and we're going to come on to inflation in a minute, which has had many of its causes in the sort of distortions created by COVID. So is that the end result? And it may seem somewhat perverse, is that this is good for risk assets. And by risk assets, I mean things like equities. The Fed's response to an unavoidable crisis, which it's Increase in interest rates has primarily caused, although clearly there are some more local issues. The net conclusion of this is that an expanding balance sheet is good for risk assets. Have I got that right?
1: You have indeed. The expanding balance sheet is good for risk assets, and that is one of the ways through which we hope to avoid recession.
0: But does that cease to be true once it feels, once the Fed deems this crisis has been averted? Do they then begin shrinking the balance sheet again, which has if we say expansion of balance sheet equals positive for risk assets, shrinking the balance sheet therefore must be negative for risk assets. So solution to crisis, good for real economy, bad for asset prices.
1: Let's see. We are jumping a little bit too far ahead of ourselves. So for now, we need to navigate the muddy waters until such time as the disinflationary trend that we're observing is more firmly established. With less inflationary pressure, there will be more support for incomes and therefore more spending and therefore less for the Fed to do via expanding the balance sheet to support the real and financial markets. However, whether the Fed will choose to continue shrinking its balance sheet remains to be seen. There are multiple ways to do this, and not all of these ways need to necessarily be bad for financial assets. In the end, as you're well aware, I'm quite convinced that economic growth and the proliferation of consumer spending will trump the adverse effects of shrinking Fed balance sheet, which will be much easier to do when the yield curve is not inverted and when economic growth is
0: at least stable. So to put words in your mouth, what the Fed's doing, which may seem almost sort of illogical and perverse, which is increasing interest rates, which has implications, consequences for the economy, and then helping out those affected, as in those in the banking sector who who are affected by this, seems kind of simultaneously trying to solve a problem that you're creating in real time. But I think what you're arguing is that actually giving the banking system enough time to heal while dealing with inflation, while snuffing out inflation, not snuffing out, but reducing inflation, bringing it down by putting the brakes in the economy is actually a pretty pragmatic solution to a sharp increase in inflation, the slope of which, the upward slope of which is quite unusual versus history. Is that a fair sort of summary of how you think the Fed is currently doing what it's doing?
1: that's quite fair. As as usual, you're able to summarize my conclusions better than I can at times. So thank you for that.
0: Yes. Well, I'll I'll, I'll ignore your compliment. Let's go on to inflation then, because inflation is clearly front and center in that is the rate of inflation, the slope of inflation being steep is clearly why the Fed is doing what it's doing in terms of its, its interest rate policy. But let's just make sure we understand inflation short term, medium term. So let's talk about what you think in the short term is happening to the major drivers of inflation, the key components.
1: Okay. So from our vantage point, we've separated the overall inflationary pressures as stemming from four sources. And these are in no particular order. So the first being energy, goods, services, and housing inflation. So let's look at four components in turn. The energy impulse from inflation near term, I think, was well flagged. This time last year, we were all collectively and individually quite scared by the prospect of an existential crisis of energy availability, particularly in Europe, where natural gas prices went up five to eightfold, therefore dragging oil prices up with it, oil being the best substitute for natural gas in the very near term. So that created significant inflationary pressure from energy. And of course, we need energy to transport goods to even provide services. No doctor will open his office without his or her lights being on. So energy is critical to absolutely everything we produce and consume. So that proliferated throughout our economy in quite a significant way. That story is largely behind us, such that the inflationary impulse from energy has been net negative for quite some months now. The second component, let's talk about our goods. So goods prices, as a result of globalization and some other factors, have been in a long-term disinflationary, if not outwardly deflationary trend. And by long-term, I mean two decades or longer. And of course, COVID had interrupted that trend. We saw significant supply chain pressures. We saw significant difficulties in procuring goods at almost any price, all of which pushed up inflationary pressures in goods together with, I might add, significant increased demand from our consumers. So if you're stuck at home and we promised we won't talk about COVID, this may be the last thing I'll say on this podcast about it. But if you're stuck at home and you cannot procure any services and you cannot go out, you start doing all kinds of projects around the house and you start getting lots more durable goods. So buying TVs, grills, all kinds of things that have a longer shelf life. All of this together resulted in significant inflation in durable goods, the likes of which we haven't seen in multiple decades. That part of the story is largely behind us. What is not yet firmly established is the deflationary trend in goods. So year-on-year goods prices are disinflating, but that rate of change is still positive. And so we as consumers... Are still feeling higher prices, prices that are rising, which hopefully in the coming months will finally reverse in a sustainable way. Then let's talk about services. Services inflation has run in the US at about a 2% clip for much of the last two to three decades. We expect that trend to persist. Services inflation is significantly higher now. There are many reasons to expect it not to remain this high for much longer. It is disinflating as we speak, but at a much slower pace, and we expect services inflation to continue to be positive. And Finally, housing. This is the last and arguably the single biggest component. So shelter weight in U.S. CPI ranges between somewhere 30 to 35 percent over the last two decades. So it's a meaningful component. And as we all experienced post-COVID, we all rushed to change places of residence, which created a near-term supply shock together, obviously, with restrictions on, on rent rises, created a double supply shock. And so both rents and housing price inflation in the U.S. in 2021 and 22 accelerated very, very sharply to mid-20% year-on-year growth rates. Again, these are rates of growth that we haven't seen in a very long time. Both components have now decelerated to something much more modest And we expect the disinflationary pressure from that to begin to show up in CPI indices imminently. And by imminently, I mean sometime by early this summer. So putting it all together, as best we can tell right now, The year-on-year inflation is tracking, so the six-month moving average of CPI is roughly annualized at 3.6%. If we take that out to nine months, we're talking about 3.2% already, and we expect that trend to accelerate, so the disinflationary trend to accelerate as we head into the summer.
0: That was a very good summary. You summarized it very well on your shorter-term outlook. There's a lot of downward pressure on the components, every component of inflation, through to the summer but if i was to throw a spanner in the works and say that's great but medium term there are some inflationary pressures brewing that mean we we are going to have a different inflationary outlook perhaps for the rest of this decade than we did for the 2010s and why would that be we can go through each of the four components here but if i start with energy and say well there is probably it is arguable there is a meaningful probability that energy could still surprise to the upside in terms of price because you've had substantial underinvestment on supply side plus it's difficult to finesse the move away from fossil fuels to clean energy to make that timing requires clean energy to, to be ready and even though there are lots of dollars being piled into decarbonization maybe it's going to take longer than we thought and therefore that creates space for a really quite sharp rise in fossil fuels so That's the bulk of my energy question. And then there's also, and we're going to talk a bit more about this later, I think that the geopolitical side to disruptions to supply due to geopolitical reasons, and that obviously can include war as well. So how do you take my devil's advocate argument that actually you're too sanguine about energy medium term?
1: All right, well, let's address that devil's argument head on. So the argument that you're proposing hinges on the assumption that we've underinvested in our excitement and our bid for cleaner energy. We've underinvested in traditional fossil fuel sources of energy. And therefore, we're in this no man's land spot in the transition where the clean energy isn't quite ready and certainly not in abundance and at prices that we all like, while fossil fuel energy is becoming more expensive because we've underinvested in it. And so I'd like to point out as usually looking at the data, and U.S. particularly provides excellent data for this. So if we look at the number of rigs, so the absolute volume of rigs that are currently opening and operating, we can clearly see that we are about a third fewer rigs today than we averaged in the 2012 to 2020 time period. So that suggests a significant decline in our fossil fuel productive capacity, so to speak. But at the same time, both crude and natural gas volumes are higher, and in the case of natural gas, significantly higher than pre-COVID rates of production, which suggests that there is a non-negligible productivity gain on a per-rig basis that has certainly happened in the U.S. shale. Expanding that out more broadly across the world, we've seen no evidence that there's been a systematic underinvestment into the fossil fuel energy so as to curtail production in a more meaningful and permanent way. What we have seen as a result of geopolitical tensions and frictions is the need to transport energy differently. So Europe, for example, will no longer be able to rely on the cheapest form of natural gas, which comes directly via a pipeline, and instead will have to rely on liquefied natural gas, which is transported from places like Qatar in the United States via expensive tankers. And so the liquefaction and the import-export terminals is what needs to be built to ensure a smooth supply and delivery of those. But that's a secondary problem, and if I may add, is being addressed much faster than what you and I had even expected, you know, this time last year. So net-net, I hear you on the challenges in the energy space, but I think those challenges are overstated, and I think we can navigate the transition from fossil fuel to cleaner energy with significantly fewer disruptions and impetus for higher inflation from the energy sector.
0: Okay, so that's pillar number one. Let's go for pillar number two. Let's talk about goods. So I'm going to be devil's advocate again and argue that goods had this fantastic disinflationary wave, and who really knows why, but you could argue it was due to globalization. You, you could argue it was due to the most efficient use of resources globally. So you had super efficient supply chains. You had labor cost arbitrage, as in making the location production where the lowest wages were. I'm going to argue that's about to reverse, and that is going to be inflationary, that The world is no longer as integrated as it was. You can't have these just-in-time integrated supply chains because you've got a big geopolitical risk premium that security of supply matters more than most efficient, lowest position on the cost curve of supply. So goods disinflation is gone because geopolitics have changed the world. That will change the location of production plus... You haven't got the big supply-side push of lower-cost labor joining a workforce when you've got world population plateauing and you've got shrinkage in working age population in many places.
1: Okay, so... When we talk about goods prices and specifically goods inflation or disinflation in the medium term, we can't escape the discussion which you rightly brought in of deglobalization or potential deglobalization. And here I would like to make a distinction between deglobalization and decoupling. So we're all aware of the political tensions between the U.S. and China, which arguably will result in some form and measure of decoupling. But to your point about making our aggregate supply chains more resilient, I would suggest actually argues for more globalization rather than less. And what I mean by that is this. If you are, as a producer of a particular good, overly reliant on all of your supply, whether it's because labor costs are cheap or transportation links are excellent or some combination of the two, but overly reliant on procuring those supplies and and, delivering those goods from one jurisdiction, to beef up security, to beef up redundance, to spread the risk of disruption, you may choose to diversify a bit and have your supply be spread out across several jurisdictions. So we are witnessing incrementally on the margin moves just along those lines. Some companies are incrementally choosing to locate their new production, not in China, where the vast majority of their historical production resides, but in places like India, for example. And if we see that diversification of production centers, and we can go to Mexico or other places in Latin America, that will actually result in more globalized supply chains, not fewer. So the discussion of decoupling versus deglobalization i think i think is important here in terms of the overall impact on inflation the overall important point here to note is that as long as technology will continue to proliferate at whatever pace and continue to make our transport more efficient our energy cheaper to make continue to make our products better those are still overwhelmingly disinflationary, if not outwardly deflationary trends. And I think there's no reason at this point to suggest that in the medium term, we're going to see a sharp reversal in all of those.
0: Yeah, I think it's an important point you make around deglobalization actually is too easy an expression and underneath the reality is just much more about a shift in the location of production and just because it's moving out of China or indeed already has moved out of China. It's still moving to somewhere else. It's not moving all the way back to where it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago. So that's a very good point. Okay, so let's quickly do rent and services, because I think they're wrapped up in the same thing, really, which is demographics. And I still don't know quite what I think on demographics in the sense that I understand if you have fewer people of working age, that should push up prices. That certainly, you know, if you look at economic history over hundreds of years, you, know, you can look at the, the UK in the, in the 13th, 14th century, you can see a big change in the price of labor because you had fewer workers. So I understand that part, but at the same time, I also understand that an aging population means more old people. Old people consume less and they consume different. So I I would have thought that services may well have stickier inflation because you've got changes in the world's advanced economies in working age population that may well more than offset the downward pressure on consumption due to all more old people the shrinkage in working age population will be quite inflationary for labor in services where the risk of the threat of automation by machines is lower than perhaps it is in manufacturing
1: so great question and here again not being the master of all theories, I'd like to point out to the humble facts and where we can find them is actually interestingly the United States. So what we have observed is that since around 2008, makes sense, fertility rate in the United States has actually plummeted from just north of 2%, which is above the replacement rate, to now somewhere south of 1.7%. So the decline in the U.S. fertility rate has been very precipitous, very steep and obviously has occurred over over a decade, and so it's quite cumulative. At the same time, around 2011-2012 timeframe, we saw a significantly faster increase in the older cohort of the population, so those that are 65 years of age and older, also in the U.S. So both of the adverse demographic trends that you and and others have rightly pointed to, we've actually already experienced in the U.S. and have lived with for about 15 years or so. And yet, if we look at the inflationary outcome over that period, we've had lower inflation, not higher inflation. Obviously, Japan is, is a poster child of the same phenomenon, which Japan has seen a remarkable rise in the aging population, together with very low fertility rates, such that Japan's population is actually outright declining right now as we speak. And yet inflationary pressures in Japan over the last decade, decade and a half have been nowhere to be seen. All this is to suggest that I think our understanding of how demographics plays into inflationary outcome remains rather incomplete for my liking. And so for now, I don't see anything in the data that would suggest that the inflation growth dynamic and growth is what overwhelmingly determines, I think, the inflation outlook has really meaningfully changed. Subject to further research, of course.
0: Of course, of course, of course. So as we head towards the close, there are a couple of things I want to touch on. And these are all big, difficult to answer questions, which is why I'm asking them because I definitely don't know how to answer them which is productivity. And productivity is usually doing things better, but oftentimes it's innovation that solves existing problems. If inflation is essentially a problem that needs solving, usually it's a problem of either inefficiency or scarcity. I'm interested in how you think about productivity, how you think about the outlook for productivity, and within that has to be acknowledgement that productivity, in terms of how it's measured, has been very underwhelming in actually most economies, but particularly in Europe and the US over the last decade, if not longer. So keen to hear your thoughts on why productivity has been so underwhelming. And are we about to see, is it possible? It's hard to, you know, you can't give a firm answer, but do you think we could well be about to see an improvement, an acceleration in productivity, partly driven by the need to solve some problems, which may well be a response to the inflation we've seen in the last few years and new and things going mostly going away but may not?
1: So that's a great question. And that's, of course, it's not just a million dollar question. It's probably a multi-trillion dollar question. Because, as you rightly pointed out, productivity is devilishly difficult to measure and we really haven't quite got a good handle on it and we don't observe it in real time, I prefer to focus on actual economic growth, which is in most developed economies and most emerging markets as well, is a good proxy for the underlying productivity growth. So the key question from my vantage point and probably many others, remains why has observed growth over the past decade and a half or so, abstracting from the COVID episode, has been so remarkably low with all the attendant problems, the socioeconomic and the political challenges that we've seen as a result of that. And I think here, I tend to focus on two things, both of which happened in not too distant future, but both of which have, I think, from my vantage point, had a profound impact on overall economic growth. So, the first point I'd like to highlight is the change in the interpretation of the antitrust laws in the US and more broadly in OECD economies that has occurred in the mid 1980s or so. So, famously, what has happened as a result of that is that we've had a pronounced and significant concentration within industries to basically monopolistic or oligopolistic structures. And in those structures, there's very little need to invest for growth You've eliminated or bought out a lot of your competitors. And so while that's an incredibly good place to look for potential investments, cash flow generation is is extraordinarily strong. The actual competitive pressures are much less so. And so the willingness and need and ability to innovate economically kind of go down. So that's the first part. And that reinterpretation of antitrust we saw quite widely. So this was not just in the U.S., it was on both sides of the Atlantic and to a lesser extent in Japan as well. And the second point, which was really concurrent with the first – is the fiscal restraint as embodied by Washington consensus. So as you recall, again, the prevailing wisdom has been for governments to curtail fiscal spending. Governments are famously impruding. There's a lot of pork barreling, et cetera. The downside or the most obvious manifestation of that curtailment has been not imprudent spending, but actually public sector investment. And as Mariana Mazzucato and many others have famously argued, it's that public sector investment that is really critical to get new technologies, new products, new ways of doing things at the scientific level, at the highest risk-taking level, diffuse level of investment is what we really need, where the payouts are very uncertain, the payout periods are very long. Before the private sector can take a new technology and commercialize it, there's often decades and decades of scientific rigor and breakthroughs that are required. And that's the part that we have consistently underinvested in for several decades. And again, that kind of progress is also cumulative. So the change in the interpretation of the antitrust law, which paves the way for monopolistic and oligopolistic structures in many industries, together with limited or significantly reduced public sector investment in new sciences, new technologies, new endeavors, I think has really put a damper on the pace with which we can innovate and therefore ultimately grow.
0: That leaves you a little pessimistic on a productivity surge.
1: Well, not necessarily. I think if we identify correctly why we've had lackluster growth, these are two things that we can change. These are things that don't require massive technological breakthroughs. These are things that we know how to change. So arguably, this is a more optimistic solution or prescription, if you will. And to the extent that we as societies are able to change these things on the margin can very well enable us to have future productivity and ultimately faster growth in the years and and decades down the road. So I would argue that's a more optimistic prognosis because if these are indeed the principal causes, then they're
0: changeable. Okay, so let's wrap up. So final question, and we talked about this a lot, but if if you were to boil it down into interest rates can clearly impact inflation, but maybe if it's chicken and egg, maybe inflation comes first. We You're in the benign inflation camp, I think it's fair to summarize. And so the environment of the 2020s won't be like the 2010s because every decade is different. But this, the decade we're already in, clearly is different from a geopolitical point of view, and that there's a hot war happening in Europe. But your overall prognosis for inflation and therefore interest rates is really quite benign, which is a pretty positive backdrop for by risk assets. By that, I mean essentially equities and similar type assets. Is that a sort of fair? Summary now geopolitics. I you know I I put that caveat in. Geopolitics can get worse from here. It can get better from here. Neither of you or I really know. And that is different. That is a clearly bigger consideration than previous decade. However, relatively benign inflation, which I think is what you're arguing, as we think about the four pillars of inflation, enables lower interest rates. And you don't seem to see a problem between lower interest rates and economic growth. Really, I think what you're saying is policy can impact growth because it has held growth productivity back. Is that is that a fair summary of where you get to? Because it's quite, I think it's quite an important message and view to have.
1: That's very much a fair summary, with the caveat being, as you rightly pointed out, that geopolitical developments can completely upset this otherwise rosy forecast. And the other important caveat I would like to throw in there is that as long as we maintain a real rate, so this is inflation-adjusted uh, real interest rate in the economy in the developed economies of somewhere between one and one and a half percent. Whatever interest rates are commensurate with maintaining a positive real interest rate in the economy is what would lead to, from an interest rate policy setting perspective, would lead to an optimized outcome. And of course, if we want to raise our growth, then there are other policy levers that we need to pull that have nothing to do with monetary policy.
0: Got it. With well, that we will wrap it up. Olga, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your views across a wide range of topics. I think I asked you mostly difficult, mostly unfair questions, but thank you for answering them.
1: Thank you, Hugo. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Spotify. And if you'd like, please leave us a review. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at active.williamblair.com and follow us on Instagram at William Blair IM.
2: This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.